Hey, friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest today is Dr. Eve Tibbs, who is an affiliate professor of theology at Fuller Theological Seminary, where she teaches historical theology, systematic theology, and Eastern Orthodox theology. Eve is the author of this book, A Basic Guide to Eastern Orthodox Theology, Introducing Beliefs and Practices. And that is what we talk about. This is basically a 101 course in Eastern Orthodox uh, beliefs and practice. So please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Dr. Eve Tibbs. Eve, thanks so much for being on Theology and Raw. I'm really excited about this conversation. That's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting yeah. me. So uh, just tell us a bit about yourself. Were you raised in the Greek Orthodox Church, or what's the background there? Well, yes and no. I am Greek by descent. Uh, 23andMe says I'm 97% Greek, which is kind of a big number. <laughs> um, I was baptized as an infant into the Greek Orthodox Church. My parents were Greek Orthodox nominally didn't really attend church, but uh, my grandmother used to take me when I was very, very little before she entered eternal life. And it stuck with me even, I mean, before the age of seven. So when I was uh, a teenager and could drive, I brought myself back to the Greek Orthodox Church. Okay. And I've been there ever since. Wow. Raised uh, My husband and I have uh, raised our children in the faith and all our grandchildren now. Okay. And um, yeah. Okay, so I have an off-the-wall goofy question that since since you're Greek, uh, how accurate is the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding? Like when you watch that, do you like are you like, oh my word, I feel like I'm watching my family, or are you like this is yes. nothing nothing like what is in No, it's pretty much I mean it, it's comedic, of course, and there's yeah. exaggerations, but that's pretty that was pretty much my life, although that was, you know, taking place in Chicago and wasn't yeah. we were a little bit more western out here, but yep. Yeah. Everybody I know who is Greek watched that movie and said, um, that's my life. They nailed it. Yeah. A good friend of mine is Greek and I just realized this and born and raised in Chicago. And oh yeah, he said the exact same thing. He's like, this is like to the T. Yeah. I, I, I have, um, I mean, so I, I'm, I'm part Armenian, um, which is oh, not, not yeah. Greek, but I mean, when I watched that, that. The, a lot of cultural similarities in in um in in my upbringing. So my my mom's half. I'm only a quarter. I don't I don't look you know Armenian, but her whole side of the family is very Armenian. And yeah, I grew up with, you know, yeah, just the food culture and I just the the male female relationships <laughs> very similar. The neck that turns the head. Yeah, the Greek. Yeah, the Greek and Armenians have a lot in common. And even on the on the, you know, on the side of persecution with the Armenian yeah. and Greek genocide. So right. we share, we share a lot of uh, wonderful familial things and we also share mm -hmm. a history of persecution. Yes, 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 absolutely. Um, okay. So I, I wanted to have you on because I, I know almost nothing. Okay. About the Orthodox church as a whole. Um, and, uh, and yet when I, I've had several people who either are Eastern or some who converted to being Eastern, who have told me that I sound kind of Eastern in the way I think about theology. And in one area, and maybe we could even begin here, the embrace of the mystery of God, um, not feeling the need to systematize everything. Um, is that a characteristic of Eastern theology? Is that just kind of in the air of how Eastern people think or is that a, is that like a more of a cardinal kind of doctrine or tell us about the mystery theology god how those 
Mystery is a tricky word, right? Because we tend to think of something like Agatha Christie and there's these (laughs) things that we don't understand that are floating around us. But if you've got to think about the, the New Testament use of the term, whenever Jesus uses the term, He's basically like the mysterion. He says to you has been given the mystery, mm. which, which seems paradoxical because they're not quite understanding it. But basically he's saying it's all out there. God has revealed God's self and you're picking up little bits and pieces of it. Mm. So that really is what mystery is. It isn't anti-intellectual. It's like hyper rational. Okay. Okay. So some people tend to think that because there's mystery, we can we can set aside the systematic ideas and that and that's entirely true but that doesn't mean that there's no discernment or intellectual understanding of the dogma it just means that god is revealing god's self through interaction and worship so all theology starts with a personal um, connection to god through worship i mean really if you think back the ecumenical councils all of the people who attended were were bishops they were responsible for worship Mm. they weren't there because they were academicians so the, I mean, because I mean, and that's your life now. You have one foot in the academy, one foot in the church. But is, is that is that pretty common in in the Eastern Church, where well, you don't have one in that, full? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Huh. Yes. So um, most of the people who are doing theology in the Orthodox Church are um, are clergy. Hmm. Um, not in, not entirely, but yeah, certainly those who are living the the life. Um, the Eucharistic life of the Orthodox Church that See, would be essential. Even that, like, I, I totally resonate with that. I mean, I was, you know, let's see, saved at nineteen. Well, we'll talk about what that even means. In, <laughs> but uh, started following Jesus um, passionately and fully, I guess, in nineteen. And I fell in love with the academic side of of uh, studying the Bible. But I also, unlike others who have that kind of passion, I actually love liked people like I, and I, and I care deeply for the church and, and, and I always said, I either want to be a pastoral theologian or a theological pastor. Um, and people were like, well, you can pick one or the other, but you can't, you kind of can't do both, you know? And, and I was like, I, I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't like that dichotomy. So, um, yeah. Yeah. You really have to, the, the ancient Christian world, Evagrius of Ponticus said, uh, that you are truly a theologian if you truly pray. Mm. And you truly pray, if you truly pray, you are truly a theologian. Mm. So those things, the, the contemplation of God and prayer and worship, they were never separated in the early church. Mm. That really didn't happen until scholasticism in the Roman Catholic West, after the split from the Orthodox churches. So that really is a, a Western church it, phenomenon, the, the split between... Yeah, yeah. The, the trajectory really starts in scholasticism in the 11th and 12th century. Okay. You know, what had many good things, but theology became, uh, Thomas Aquinas called it the queen of the sciences. Mm. Um, and that that takes it in a little bit different way. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a really basic history lesson for somebody that doesn't even, like I'm thinking of like even my kids or younger people in the faith where they're like, wait, what is, there's a Western church and an Eastern church and can you take us back to why, how we got a Western church, Eastern church, what that even means? And then also the different brands. I mean, I know like, you know, you have uh, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, uh, Coptic. Is that even part of, you know, the Eastern church? Um, can you give us, yeah, just a real basic overview, historically speaking? Okay, yeah. here we go. Um, <laughs> well, in the ancient Christian world, let's start with the apostles and and Christ and, and move, move forward. Um, 
those who spoke Greek were called in the Christian East, in Jerusalem and mm -hmm. Constantinople and Antioch, um, were they, they were the Greek-speaking Christians, and the Latin-speaking Christians were primarily in the West in Rome. Mm -hmm. And so really, that's where you get okay. Eastern and Western. Even today, um, the Orthodox world was the Greek-speaking Christians, and the West was from, from Latin. So for the first 1,000 years or so, the, there, there was one, one church. We mm -hmm. called it the Undivided Church, and it was East and West. And there was a lot of diversity. What was happening in Rome would have been different from what was happening in Antioch, and that was absolutely fine. Mm -hmm. Until the end of the first millennium, Christian millennium, um, there became a debate about uh, the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. And um, in the Christian West, one of the popes, Nicholas I, said, you know what, I don't need to talk to the rest of the bishops in council because I am on the seat of Peter and I can make this decision by myself. And I'm, that's very simplified. Yeah. Little by little, the, the diversity became disunity. Okay. And in 1054, there was an official split. Um, the, basically, the East and West excommunicated one another. <laughs> and, then, and the Eastern churches, the five seas that were you know, Jerusalem, um, Alexandria, Antioch, Constantinople, and Rome, they divided east and west hmm. so in 1054 that's the first time you could say there was a separate roman catholic church okay and all of the rest of those sees of the pentarchy there's they were they remained orthodox and they are still orthodox and intact today okay then over on the western side of church history in the latin roman west you know this um, martin luther was an augustinian monk and the reformation takes place uh, in the early 16th century but all of that um, you know, John Calvin further north in, in Geneva and Erwick Zwingli and all of those Reformation traditions, they all originate in the Christian West. They, they are, they're reforming uh, the church as presented in the Roman Catholic Church after the Great Schism of the 11th century. Mm -hmm. Then you've got the Christian East. What's happening over there? Very different history, very mm -hmm. different theology. So what really Martin Luther was 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 rebelling against was some of the things that Rome had added after the Great Schism of 1054. In fact, he was really upset, you know, as you know, with, mm -hmm. with Rome. And and one point on the Eucharist, he says, the Greeks are the best Christians uh, in the world. Um, really? Because he was yeah. really, he yeah, he yeah. was, he, because the Greeks, it, the, the specific thing was that the Greeks were offering the Holy Eucharist in both forms, the body and blood of Christ, to lay people. Okay. And at that time, the new Roman Catholic medieval church was only offering both forms to clergy. Oh, wow. Really? I did not know that. Wow. Okay. Um, did, did the Eastern church have any kind of its own reformation? This is a, I, I, I think no. not, right? No, no and there no. was no 1517 moment in. No. Okay. No. Yeah. Um, there, you know, there's kind of, there's, uh, I'm kind of I'm a little bit of a nerd and I like to tell these, you know, light bulb jokes And I, I used to be a software developer and it's like, how many software developers <laughs> does it take to change a light bulb? Do you know? No, I heard none, 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 because that's hardware. <laughs> um, so how many Orthodox does it take to change a light bulb? How many? Ch change. Oh, <laughs> it's like that. like a dad joke. Um, that's funny. That okay. is a dad joke. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so, so since since the Great Schism in 1054, there has been there have been no dogmatic changes in the Orthodox Church, okay. um, and that's that's 
pretty important. That doesn't mean that other things don't change. Right. I mean, it, the Holy Spirit is present and the faith is dynamic, even mm. though it maybe appears, you know, old, old fashioned to a lot of people today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so where did, uh, where do we get Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox? What's the, what's the, is it, is it a relationship similar to what we would call like denominations or is it more like the Anglican church in England and the Anglican church in America are going to have somewhat different flavors or. Yeah. So the, the Orthodox will talk about the one Orthodox church, okay. wherever it is in the world. Okay. Um, and the faith is exactly the same. So it's not denominations. They're not parts of okay. one another. They are the one apostolic church that has a historically continuous, um, both in faith and in worship, and in dogma, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and it's very simple answer to the question. Uh, I, I worship in a Greek Orthodox parish. And when we have our festival, we have baklava. <laughs> and in the Russian Orthodox churches, they have pierogies. So really, I call, I call it different flavors of Orthodoxy. It, there is only one Orthodox okay. church. There are different jurisdictions around the world, but those are mainly administrative. And the Orthodox Church is, does not think of itself in administrative terms. Okay. Basically, it's the body of Christ wherever it is found. It's kind of a, a cosmic. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the leadership is going, like you might have a, a head of the Russian Orthodox Church and a head of the Greek Orthodox, but they don't, they don't see each other as competing with that or they're just no so, yeah. so one of the essentials of orthodoxy and that that's in um in my book is conciliar mm -hmm. uh the orthodox church is conciliar the roman catholic church has its head which is the pope and the pope can make decisions he has universal authority he can even declare dogma on his mm -hmm. own um, he's got that kind of immediate uh plenary authority but in the orthodox church no one person has okay any authority. The only the authority is Jesus Christ. Mm. So all of the bishops are equal. And this is why there are, there's been no dogmatic declarations uh, since the church has been able to gather in council. That's what the term conciliar means. If you think back to um, Acts chapter 15, you know, there was a problem with Gentiles becoming mm -hmm. Christian. Should they become Jewish first? You remember that debate? And how did they solve that debate? No, even P Peter was there. Right. If Peter had been the boss of the apostles, he would have made the decision himself. But no, they sent word back to Jerusalem. And even James there, who was the bishop there, he didn't even make the decision himself. He called a council, it says, of the um, of the elders and the whole church. Mm. And their, their response, it's in chapter 15, verse 28, I'm pretty sure. Um, it's They begin it like this. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And to us. And to us, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then whatever, yeah. I don't even care what comes next, yeah. but they yeah. met in council and waited until they could all agree. That's conciliarity. Okay. So that really is how, I mean, humans are are flawed and sinful, but the ideal, mm -hmm. um, the way the Orthodox Church is kind of, I guess you'd say structured, even though it's not really structured, is that no one person um, is an authority and everybody together is the church. And okay. so when we use the term the church, it really means everybody, not just, okay. you know. Is there within, within that kind of plural, so no single Pope-like figure at the top, but is it, other than that, is, is there still like a hierarchical level of leadership? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes, there, definitely hierarchy, but okay. I guess, you know, we, we don't have time, but there is also a hierarchy, at least in the Orthodox view of the Holy Trinity, but there are no degrees of divinity. So the Father is the one from whom the Son is begotten, mm -hmm. and the Father is the one from whom the Spirit proceeds. But mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that the Father is a superior God than the Son or the right. Spirit. 
there is a hierarchy. It, Justin Martyr in the second century said it's there's a there's a taxis an order. There's the protos who is the father, and then the second who is the son, and mm -hmm. the third who is the spirit. But when we say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're not saying one is better. Right. One not, one is not superior. So that really is how the Orthodox Church has structured okay. uh, as a model, or I should say an icon of the Holy Trinity, that there is a hierarchy, because you always have to have a protos, uh, you always have to have a, uh, a point of unity to prevent the diversity from becoming disunity. Interesting. And, okay. Yeah. And, when you, and when you honor the hierarchy out of love for Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. then, then it's not a, not a power authority issue. Right. You're, you're staying together out of love for Jesus Christ. It's a hierarchy among equals. I mean, it's it's. It is. Yeah. yeah. It's the the protos the first is always I've been talked about by the church fathers as the first among equals. Okay. That's a great yeah. great way to put it. Yes. Is there there there's been a debate within some evangelical circles about the so-called uh, eternal subordination of the son? Is that a thing in the Eastern Church? A matter of debate, or did they have a view on that? Or because um, I, th I think most people would deem that as like I, heresy. I, well, I guess you could say that there is, a, would there be an eternal subordination of the Son and the Holy Spirit? Mm. Because I think it's a misunderstanding, and I've actually just touched on that a little mm. bit. If the Father is the, like the monarch, but that's not actually a bad word in, in Trinitarian language, yeah. but if the Father is the source of, of the relationship with the Son and the source of the relationship with the Spirit, that taxis, that order, mm -hmm. that is not subordination. Okay. That yeah. is that is um, communion or yes. perichoresis. You can use all of those fancy terms. You can think of it in terms of a Roman mindset, where the Pope is, you know, yeah. representing the Father. But that's not an Orthodox worldview. Okay. The Orthodox worldview is always conciliar. So under the under the Western understanding of authority, with papal authority, then then you might have a view of the Trinity in that way. Okay. But if there's if they're eternally and um, if, if there's no div di different degrees of divinity mm -hmm. and the son is an eternal son and the father is an eternal father, there really isn't any subordination in that sense. Yeah, I don't like the term subordinate. When they say subordinate, that sounds like an unhealthy kind of hierarchy. You know, it almost has a secular feel of like leadership, yeah. like subordinate. Exactly. The, yeah. Yeah. I, there's, so there's no, no like teachings about authority. Mm. In the Orthodox Church, so Protestants, the authority is sola scriptura, is the Bible, mm -hmm. and in the Roman Catholic Church, the authority is the Pope or the Magisterium, mm -hmm. the College of Bishops that you know help determine um, you know scripture, um, scriptural interpretation. There's nothing like that in the Orthodox Church, mm -hmm. because the, you know the only authority is Jesus Christ, and individuals might have jurisdiction or responsibility, but ideally and theologically, yeah. Um, there is, there's no, no support for that. So would you, this is, I, I wasn't planning on going here, but this has been something I've been thinking deeply about the last couple of years, uh, leadership in the New Testament church. And it is interesting that the very words that the apostle Paul uses to describe leaders, like he actually avoids the Greek word exousia, the, the typical word for authority, you know, um, because he, he, he uses I mean, he, the main word is diakonia, service. Like if you're a leader, service. you're a servant. <laughs> yeah, um, actually in, in the in Ephesians chapter three, he calls himself a the, yeah. the, the diakonos, the servant. Yeah. yeah. Or the, um, yeah, the, the servant. 
So, but he also talks about it as a minister, and the word there is liturgon. He's yes. also the one who offers worship as well. Right, yeah. In Romans 15, too, I think that word occurs as well. Um, or or, or the, the closest he gets is, uh, uh, if I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, a proestemi or something, like a, a household manager um, in... Those who lead in in, in First Timothy, I want to say five. Those who lead well, who manage well, um, the elders who are leading well. But it's not again. It's it's, it's not exousia. It's not this like heavy handed kind of idea of lead top down leadership. Um, so I guess my my question. So the leaders Episcopos, is that what you're thinking of? What's Episcopos? it? The bishop? Epis, no, 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 no. Um, Proistami. It's only used a couple times, I think, but it ha- it's translated like man- manager, the one who manages yeah. the household. Yeah. Oh, you do have Episcopal, yeah, the overseer as well. But um, mm-hmm. so in the Orthodox Church, to be a leader is not seen as a highly like authority. You have certain responsibilities, but no. you're not seen as like an authority exactly. over non leaders. Is that a good exactly. way? Exactly. To- no, I mean, it's Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, saying, This is wow. what you need to be doing. Okay. I mean, that's got to be it. And I, and I think that plays out. I know a lot of a lot of Orthodox clergy and bishops, and um, there's. I, I don't like to use the term, term servant leader because that mm-hmm. has a, you know, twenty twenty first century connotation. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I guess they are those things. They are those things. I know a lot of most. You know, uh, I can't think of anybody who isn't a humble servant leader. Right. What kind of um, spiritual? So I'm not, not going to be really careful careful with my words. Spiritual <laughs> oversight, spiritual, are, are there authority-like <laughs> things that, like, like... Yeah, well, uh, because, well, so for example, I have, I, our bishop is Metropolitan Gerasimus of San Francisco. I, okay. He's lovely, and he's humble, and he's tireless, but his main role, and the main role of all of the bishops throughout church history, especially early church history, um, if you think about uh, St. Irenaeus and the problems he was having with Gnosticism in the second century mm. and he's, and, and Ignatius, and they say, look to the bishop. Mm. Okay. Um, the bishop can, the bishop can, can, if you are connected to this bishop who is connected to all the other bishops, then you know, you're connected to the true church of Christ. And so the, even continually to today, the bishop is the one who preserves truth mm-hmm. by holding everybody together. Okay. And so his role is mainly, to to stop disunity okay okay and 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 that means that anybody for example if he to use the term authority if he needs to make a transfer administrative transfer or step in if if there's an issue okay um people follow him not because they have to Mm. he's not my boss i'm on the metropolis council i don't follow him because he's my boss i'm a volunteer (laughs) <laughs> but I follow him out of love for Jesus Christ. I, and so people uh, will follow their bishop. And I, it's a hard thing to explain to somebody outside of that. Um, we don't have to follow him, but we do to preserve unity because of love for Jesus Christ and his church. And I would imagine you follow him because he's imitating Christ well, like he's laying down well, an even example. If, of- but even if he didn't, we, okay. even if he didn't, and I'm not saying he doesn't, but yeah. even if he didn't, okay. um, the Orthodox will typically follow their bishop okay. out of love for Jesus Christ. Wow. Because because humans are yeah. sinful and flawed, but but Christ is is perfect. I really like again, my I'm just kind of knee deep in New Testament leadership categories and how it was so different than how the Greco Roman world viewed this very, very top down hierarchical, you know, status driven 
view of leaders. And it seems like that, that Paul and, and other New Testament writers were turning that just on its head by, again, constantly calling leaders servants as, as, as the main, yeah, not servant leadership in this, in a modern sense of the term, but you are a leader right. because you're a servant, like yeah. servants are leaders. I, I would love to know uh, the kind of big picture. What are some key differences between, uh, so most of my audience is probably oh. going to be yeah, evangelical Christian. My audience is going to be more kind of moderate. They're not going to be, you know, f- for lack of better terms, far left or right or whatever. Um, but they're, you know, probably standard evangelical, many non-denominational kind of people. What what would be some the main kind of distinctions between that brand of Christianity and and the Eastern faith? Um, <laughs> it's it's probably an easy easy easy, but not but not quick. Okay. So Augustine of Hippo is a saint in the Orthodox Church, but he is probably responsible for the biggest trajectory, the biggest difference. So Augustine was a very creative thinker. And there's a term that I actually really like. It's theologumenon. Theologumenon. It's a pious idea that may or may not be true. It's kind of, I guess you might say, a speculation. Okay. You know, here's... Before dogma had kind of been defined or the correct way of talking about, for example, Jesus fully God and fully human, all of, all of the language that came about through the ecumenical councils, um, they, they speculated on, well, maybe it's this or maybe it's this. So he did that with his view of inherited guilt. A lot of people think that he misread Romans and that he, he, mm-hmm. he substituted a, a Greek word and said, because... Uh, Adam, because Adam sinned, we have all sinned, and therefore we have all inherited the guilt of Adam. Mm-hmm. And Augustine even says, even if parents have been baptized, their child has inherited the guilt of Adam. Mm. And that's something that that carried through the Protestant tradition, through the Roman Catholic tradition, because Luther was an Augustinian monk, and that has carried through. I think most of evangelical Protestantism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And therefore, the solution to that problem, if you state the problem that way, which let me already say is not the way the Orthodox state the problem. Okay. If you state the problem that way, we've inherited guilt, we owe God a debt, and some says we owe God a debt, then how do you pay back that debt? Well, mm. in the West, the problem is solved at the cross, where Jesus has paid back the debt to God the Father. Um, and, and it's done. So Good Friday is it, the cross is it, the work is done, and, and you hear that. Um, so first of all, the Orthodox would say, wherever does God need payment in order to forgive? And mm. my example uh, is, you know, the prodigal son. The father is mm. representing God and he's running out to meet his prodigal son, even before the son has had an opportunity to ask for forgiveness to, right. be, to be brought back in. He's forgiving him immediately mm. simply by making the effort to turn back, to repent. So, but, but more than that, we the Orthodox believe that we have, Adam and Eve certainly uh, caused a big problem for all of us. But the main problem in Genesis, from an Orthodox worldview mm-hmm. perspective, is that Adam and Eve wanted the one thing that God said, uh, the one thing that was not to be communion with God. They were given this entire garden. Mm-hmm. God said, be fruitful mm-hmm. and multiply and use all these things. And all of these things are meant to be communion with the God of life. And Adam and Eve said, you know what? Okay, that's all good, but we want that that thing that you didn't give us. So in a way, it's paganism. Mm. And in whatever the fruit means and represents, it means turning away from the God of life mm. toward the thing that's dead in itself. 
whatever the fruit is, it's dead in itself. Hmm. So it's kind of a bigger cosmic thing that that yes, Adam sinned and Adam was disobedient, but that's the least significant thing. What we've inherited is death. We die. I mean, they didn't die immediately, but now right. we die. Yeah. And and there's evil in the world and there's sin in the world. So the problem statement is that we've got we've inherited a big mess of things. Our human condition is decaying and we die. Okay. So Jesus has come, he he took on the human condition, he became one of us, mm-hmm. and it, just in doing so. He's reunited humanity and divinity in himself. Mm-hmm. And yes, he went to the cross, but he also conquered death. Mm-hmm. And that's our enemy. So if if the problem statement is that we've inherited something like an illness, we die and we've got enemies. The, the view of Jesus is that he comes to solve the problem by conquering our enemies, by eliminating evil, by renewing creation. And so his resurrection is... Crucifixion is important. You have to have that. He's died for our sake, mm-hmm. um, but he's resurrected and he's the conqueror. So when Orthodox Christians see Jesus on the cross mm-hmm. on Good Friday, um, they don't see the victim. They see the one who loved us so much, he voluntarily ascended the cross in order to conquer death so that we can, so we can uh, be united to him in eternal life. So I'm hearing, so the, yeah, because if you have a different um different problem statement leads yes, to a different answer that 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 really is a that that leads to yeah several significant differences This episode is sponsored by Haya Health, a children's nutritional supplement that's actually really good for them. So I first heard about Haya through an advertisement uh, on another podcast, and I immediately thought, man, I wish this was around when my kids were young. Uh, it can be so difficult. As you know, if you're a parent, you know, it can be hard to get your children uh, to consume all the nutrition that they need. And this is where Haya can help. Because let's be honest, most children's uh, vitamins are basically like candy in disguise. They're they're filled with sugar, unhealthy chemicals, other gummy junk that kids shouldn't eat. That's why Haya was created. It's a pediatrician approved, super powered, chewable vitamin. And while most children's vitamins are filled with sugar, Haya is made with zero sugar and zero gummy junk. And it actually tastes good. Like I tried it myself and I was shocked at how good it tastes for being so packed with so many vitamins and nutrients. Haya is uh, pressed with a blend of 12 organic fruits and veggies, then supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals, including vitamin D, uh, B12, C, zinc, folate, and many others to help support immunity, energy, brain function, mood, concentration, teeth, bones, and more. It's non-GMO, vegan, dairy-free, allergy-free, gelatin-free, nut-free, and everything else that you can imagine. So uh, we at Theology and Raw, we worked out a special deal with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. You can receive 50% off your first order. That's a lot. Um, to claim this deal, you must go to HayaHealth.com forward slash T-I-T-R. This deal is not uh, available on the regular website, so you actually have to go to the, the this website. So uh, H-I-Y-A health.com forward slash T-I-T-R. It's all in the show notes and get your kids the full body nourishment that they need to grow into healthy adults. Adam sin introduced sin and death into the world. We inherit death. um, Because, because they separated from the God of life. Right. And Jesus has returned us to communion with the God of life. That's it. Okay. What's the difference between life and death? I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, it's fine. No, no. I just, um, so, um, 
Whereas, yeah, most Protestants would say we inherit, yeah, Adam's guilt on some level. Yuck. There's debates about how that's transmitted, you know, and and I I agree. I mean, f- uh, Romans five twelve. I do think Augustine very much mistranslated that instead of because all sinned, he right. translated in it in right. whom, which is not what the Greek is it F ho or something or F ho exactly. Yeah, um, it's very yeah. good. I remember I remember writing a paper on this in my Bible college days like 25 years ago and looking at that. Yeah. So so But you know so that leads to so many other things though. Um the immaculate conception of Mary in the Roman Catholic Church, that's dogma. Okay. Um Pope Pius IX declared it ex cathedra from his throne that Mary is the immaculate conception. Mm. And a lot of people don't realize what that means. That means that of all the parents who had relations and bore children, Mary's parents were the only ones that didn't pass along original guilt. Right. Her, yeah. her conception was the immaculate conception, the only child ever born mm-hmm. with an immaculate conception. So what does that do to Mary? It makes her a different right. kind of ontological human being than the rest of us. So that's not an orthodox understanding. If for, for us, Mary's, if you came to my church, you would see a huge icon of, G, of Mary with Jesus Christ. Okay. And, and maybe somebody who didn't know better would say, ah, see, these Orthodox do worship Mary. No, she's an ordinary, okay. ordinary girl. But her yes was not preordained. Okay. She completely gave herself over to God's will. Her yes was voluntary. And she bore, I mean, she becomes the temple because she herself bore God. So the so Eastern what, it, Church has a different view of Mary than the, than the Catholic absolutely. Church. Absolutely. Uh, uh. Yes. Now, the, the Eastern Church will refer to Mary as Theotokos, Okay. which is what Cyril of Alexandria said. You probably remember this uh, in his debate with Nestorius. Nestorius says, I'll call her Christotokos because she gave birth to this, this um, human who was the Christ. Okay. Oh. And, and in this person who is the human Christ, there is alongside him, I'm simplifying ridiculously, but there is this divine logos and there is this human Christ. And Nestorius said, you can't call her Theotokos because these two these two parts of him are separate, and the church says no. And Sir Alexandria represented the Orthodox position and said, no, he Jesus is inseparably God and inseparably human, and so we, we will call her Theotokos because she gave birth to God. So when 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 the Orthodox use the term Theotokos, they're really making a Christological statement. Interesting. Uh, she okay. gave birth yeah. to God. Wow. Okay. Following following the Council of Ephesus and Cyril of Alexandria and the Council of Chalcedon, et cetera. So it's almost like, it sounds, this might be an inaccurate way of putting it, but just for simplicity's sake, like the Eastern view of Mary is kind of in between Protestant and Catholic in a sense. Like it's a higher view of Mary than Protestants might have or a more nuanced, more theologically sophisticated view, um, but doesn't fall into, well, I don't, my Catholic friends... The kind of Mariolatry, uh, they say it's not, it, it, yeah, they say it's, it's a little more nuanced than that too. But um, so high view of Mary, but no, may, no worship of. Maybe not. I mean, the Orthodox would say that, that the Immaculate Conception is an improper dogma. It's actually okay. dogma. You have to believe it in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Roman Catholics also have a dogma of the bodily assumption of Mary before her death. Hmm. And the Orthodox believe that Mary fell asleep in the Lord. She actually really died because she's a regular human being. So maybe it's a little, I don't know if it's in between. Um, I, I think that, that the evangelical, uh, what do I want to say? 
ignorance, ignoring Mary in a sense, mm. comes from the medieval Catholic view of Mary. In other words, it's still that polem- that it's still the Reformation polemic. A reaction against all a reaction Catholic. against yeah, yeah. that that particular yeah. kind of view. Okay. And you know what? I, I, I teach at, at Fuller Theological Seminary, and I've taught systematic theology for a lot of years. Only recently, in 2017, did they ask me to teach uh, courses on Eastern Orthodox huh. theology. And it's been, um, those classes have been oversubscribed with a wait list. So I'm, it's the content, it's not me. But in any event, before I was teaching classes on Orthodoxy, um, I would basically teach the Western systematic, you know, dogmatic tradition. Huh. And during the break, people would come up to me and say, okay, what is the Orthodox view on this thing that you just <laughs> talked about? And when asked, I would tell them and they would say, you know what? I think I'm Orthodox because I've always thought that I never, you know, yeah. you've, in, in the, in the Western seminary, you've got to pick, is it Bart? Is it Bruner? Is it Pelagius? Is it Augustine? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then when you hear that there's a whole other worldview that yeah. never entered the Western Academy, they go, Oh, I think that's me. <laughs> So okay, so going back to Adam, so so no inherited guilt. Is there a, a view of like a are we born with like a sin nature or what's the how would you how what's the kind of we, anthropology in in orthodoxy? Yeah, we're definitely fallen. We're okay. fallen. We're sinful. We need a savior. Okay. We're a big mess. Okay. But yeah. but God doesn't require us to pay him back. God okay. wants everybody to be saved. So there's 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 no Calvinistic. There's no tulip. There's no election. Okay. And, and even eternity is looked at in a different way. We don't have time for that, but maybe I'll come back and talk about that another yeah. time. Okay. Okay. So, and, and so that leads to maybe a different view of salvation. So there's no like penal substitution. That would be a, probably a there's big difference. There's definitely no penal substitution. And salvation in the Orthodox Church is called theosis, which is really mm. union or reunion with God. And it begins, it begin, it began when Jesus, Jesus' incarnation. Hmm. So salvation, when you say the work of Christ, where did his work begin? Most Protestants would say when he went to the cross. The Orthodox would say when he became incarnate. Okay. He, because he begins the process of uniting us, reuniting us, in communion with God. So um, salvation as theosis is union with God. It was Peter, um, in Peter's epistle, he says that we are partakers of the divine nature. Mm-hmm. So what Jesus is by nature, he will give us by grace. And this is part of Paul's language where he says we would become sons of God. Okay. Um, because we we are sons when we are in Christ. When we are connected to His Son, we become like sons. Okay. And I, you know, I, uh, you know, sometimes women will read that and say, "No, no, this is this is, you know, we, we don't want to be sons of God." No, I I say yes, I do. Mm-hmm. I would if I'm going to be in my relationship with with the Father like Jesus. Absolutely, make me a son. Hmm. Okay. Make me a son of God, because that's that's our goal: is that we should be so in Christ hmm. that we are adopted into the relationship with His Father through Him. It's interesting that in so I, I did my PhD work in in, in Paul, and um, you know Paul has lots of you know metaphors of salvation. By far, the most pervasive description of our salvific state is that we are in Christ. I think over a hundred times mm-hmm. in Paul, not justification, not redemption. I mean, all these are there and important, but in Christ over and over and over and over. It s- sounds like the Orthodox church is sort of capitalizing on that as kind of the main kind yeah. of lens to view and, our salvation. And so he also, St. Paul also says he's working out his salvation in fear and trembling yeah, and that, and that he's reaching forward 
he's stretching forward to the end. So salvation for the Orthodox is um, not a one-time, it's not a momentary mm -hmm. experience, it's one's entire life. And yes, that may even continue into eternity okay. because God is infinite and we are not, we are finite, even though he's been, he, he will grant us eternal life, we are still finite mm -hmm. beings. So there is more of God Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. become in communion with that it'll never end that that doesn't sound too different from i would say maybe more of a protestant uh, scholarly understanding of salvation where you know even in paul you have or in the new testament as a whole you have past tense we have been saved you have current present tense yeah. we are are being saved and future tense we will be saved exactly. so this already not yet um I think Protestants would distinguish again on a more academic level. I think in the church, these terms get thrown around as synonyms, but like, you know, justification might be a description of that um, initial point of salvation, um, uh, you know, redemption or, you know, re resurrection, looking at the fi final state. Mm -hmm. But all of these are under the broad umbrella of salvation, which is an already not yet past, present, future phenomenon. So uh, while Protestants should distinguish between justification and maybe sanctification, uh, we shouldn't put a harsh distinction between sanctification and salvation. Like sanctification is another way of looking at this process of salvation. So some people might hear me talk like that and say, wait, you sound, uh, that's, that's not evangelical. I'm like, no, th that actually is very, very standard. Again, on a scholarly level, that that's how we talk. Cause that's how Paul talks. I mean, he just, there's no getting around the fact that he talks about salvation from all these different angles. So so everything I said that 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 would be similar, I think, to the Eastern understanding. Which is, in some ways, yeah, okay. kind of manipulating the the <laughs> semantics, but yes, very, very similar. Okay. I think it's the the big difference is that salvation is a is a lifelong process that may even continue into eternity because of God's uh, infinity. And yeah, um, I saw you yeah in our email exchange. Can you expand that a little bit? That's interesting. So so in the afterlife and in, in eternity, uh, there's still a process of salvation happening. It's not like it's yeah. Um, well, okay. So <laughs> in the in, in the uh, it's not universalism, but I suppose some people might think that that that, that it's there, but it's not. Um, there. In the Orthodox teaching, there isn't like a, uh, a separation between heaven and hell. Okay. Um, because God is present everywhere. How can you have a place where God is not? Hmm. God is the creator of all things. God is the one who exists outside of time. It's the God of life. And um, if you think of, um, what is it? Matthew 25, 31, the judgment seat of Christ, where he's separating the sheep from the goats. Um, th they're both in his presence. Some are on his right, some are on his left. Hmm. But the ones on his left, are the earth, I'm using this kind of figuratively, yeah. the, the word picture, they will not be really happy with the uncreated glory of, of God hmm. um, because they have preferred darkness, as St. Paul would say. Um, they're, they, they don't want to be exposed to the light. They, want to, they prefer darkness. So the light of Christ or whatever you're going to, the uncreated glory of God, whatever that is, um, is going to be painful hmm. and torture to those who don't want to be in Christ's, hmm. in God's presence. It's, it's kind of like, um, you don't want to be with God, sorry, you're going to be with God, hmm. but you're not going to like it. <laughs> and so God will give us whatever we want. Do you want to go closer to Jesus Christ and be in the light of light of Jesus Christ and the love and all of that? However, you've groomed your life, mm -hmm. um, then then when you were in Christ's presence, 
you will love that presence and you will want more of it because Mm. he is infinite and we are not. There will always be more love. It will never be boring. Mm. More Mm. love to attain to. But if you've groomed your life on earth as, uh, you know, uh, as preferring hell, Mm -hmm. um, you you are not going to go into hell. You are going to be in hell when you are in Christ's presence because his his love and his glory Mm. will be like fire to you. It's a little bit different way because it... It uh, it puts the burden of salvation on each of us. Okay. It isn't earning your salvation by works. Salvation is a gift if you want to talk about it in Western terms. Okay. But if if you think of salvation in terms of communion with God, and growing in communion with God, mm-hmm. then the the burden is on us. Do you want to do you want to be with God? Do you want to grow in communion with God? Mm. You're gonna love that. You're gonna love eternity because mm-hmm. there's plenty of that for you. You know, are you the worst sinner? Are you, you know, I, I don't even want to think about it. I don't even watch the news anymore. Mm. Um, you're going to pretty much hate being in God's presence, and it's going to be pretty painful. Is there opportunity to repent and turn to God endlessly in the afterlife, like in a more of a traditional Christian universalist perspective, or is it not? It's never taught, okay. um, but I think there's this, there's kind of this hope. In fact, actually, um, Metropolitan Callistos Ware of Blessed Memory in his um, collected volume one of his collected works. The last chapter says, dare we hope for the salvation of all? And ultimately I'm summarizing here. He says, we should hope, okay. but we should never teach that because that's not what the Bible says. So it's kind of a, interesting. we, we don't know what's going on in eternity, but I think it's a theologumena. <laughs> it's a, a pious idea that the saints, according to Callistos Ware, um, the saints would not be happy if they knew that people were being tortured for eternity. And so there is this hope that the love of the love of the love of God will overcome Hmm. even the worst sinner. But I mean, but that's not taught. So I'm not saying that that there's that the Orthodox Church is universalistic. But there's always just this kind of like, so it doesn't really fit any of the traditional Western church no. categories of, you know, we have three, we no. have universalism, annihilation, and eternal conscious no. torment. It's, it's neither. It's neither. And I, and I really do think that the idea that, that the Orthodox view si- solves a lot of the, the reasons that some of those like annihilation, conditional mm-hmm. uh, annihilationism, I think mm-hmm. that, you know, God will, God will honor what, what it is you've chosen with your life. I'd be curious, and we don't need to get into this, but unless, unless you want to say a quick word, but <laughs> like some, some of the traditional kind of like hell passages, the lake of fire, you know, language around destruction, or even some of the torment passages, you know, like, are, are would those be seen as like metaphor or like, do you know like yeah. how those would be interpreted? If, if there is even one standard way of looking at those passages. I guess metaphor, but is it metaphor? It really is. Yeah. It, it's really a description of of pain and suffering, which which evil mm. uh, evil ones will experience in the presence of the of the uncreated glory of the loving God. Mm. It makes it makes it, me it, actually think of um, the the way you're talking about the afterlife. You have that kind of strange, or at least strange, the Protestant ears passage at the end of. Revelation, when you have the the New Jerusalem, but then it says, and outside are the kind of you know the evildoers and stuff. So you're like, wait a minute. So they're kind of right outside, and then kind it says there. the door is always open too. It's like, well, open for who? And that's where I mean, Christian Universalists would capitalize on that, saying, see, there's there's right. 
there's this fine line between, you know, the, the sheep and the goats and the goats are out there, but there's always a possibility of them coming in mm-hmm. here. Um, yeah. So, so the Orthodox Church, one thing that you've that you've reminded me of, tends to not speculate on either end of the Bible. Hmm. Um, there's no, um, uh, you know, are, are Orthodox young Earth creationists or yeah. Darwinian, you know, evol- none of those. Okay. Um, the only thing the Orthodox would say, and the Orthodox fathers throughout the throughout the ages, is that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, hmm. and we don't know how God did those things, but God did those things. Um, just like we don't know how how Jesus became incarnate, but we know that he is truly God and truly human. Hmm. And we also know that he will return again mm-hmm. in glory. Uh, how, when? The Orthodox will never speculate. In fact, when I was taking classes uh, for, for my uh, master's at Fuller, and uh, actually my parish priest required that I read um, additional books for every class I took at Fuller. <laughs> really? yeah. Orthodox books. So, And I actually was accountable to him for papers and exams. He wanted to make sure that I understood the Orthodox view. So I did double the work for my master's. But I remember I came to him one uh, on, I said, I think we're all millennial, you know, pre-millennial, yeah, post-millennial, yeah. dispensational. And I said, I think we're all millennial. And he said, stop. <laughs> I don't even want to hear those terms. And I said, well, you sent me to seminary. I've got a test. I think the Orthodox are all millennial. And he goes, no, those are Western terms. They don't describe us. Huh. Christ will come again, period. Okay, okay, well, I have to still pass the test, but all right. <laughs> See, I think it's uh, the way you're talking, like that. I think that's because I, I very much resonate with that. The, these, I, I just, part, part of it's my, I, you know, I'm, I'm a biblical scholar by trade. I love to look at, you know, like pericopes and, and, and words and themes and what's Paul doing in the text, what's Jesus doing, you know, rather than trying to systematize the whole thing. And I think mm-hmm. sometimes, the Western church overly systematizes things when, and yeah, what you said about young and old earth, I, I completely resonate, you know, with that, you know, I mean, if, if you're going to get down into like, how do you like an apologetic, you know, how do you correlate science and the Bible and stuff? I, I, I'm not saying there's not a place for those conversations, but I just think sometimes we get our, um, as my mom would say, my, our undies in a bunch too much over some of these things that just don't, <laughs> you know, um, I- I think science is going to, well, I think actually, which is it, Michio Kaku, who's the, the string theory guy, I think that science is going to get to the place where they, where God is essential. I, Einstein mm-hmm. kind of touched on that, the black box that, you know, the in-move mover has to start things off, but mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty sure I have his name right, Michio Kaku, he's like the string theory guy, mm-hmm. you know, um, Big Bang Theory show, the string theory. Okay. Anyway, he says that there must be a God. Mm-hmm. Um and I think quantum mechanics is getting to the point where we can explain things like Jesus walking through locked doors. Hmm. Um, but science is just getting there. Um, so yeah. theology can kind of help science at that point. Yeah. They're not opposed. We just have a few more minutes and I have too many questions here. So uh, um, I'm okay. I'm curious. And, and we had an uh, email exchange about this as well. well. What's the Eastern view of women? Um, you don't have women... Women are good. (laughs) I mean, is it would it would it be? I mean, the Protestant category, the evangelical categories are you know complementarian, egalitarian, male only leaders, or you know female and male. Is it? um, You even have like uh, you know a a, a hot button term today is you know patriarchy, and you have literal patriarchs, right? I mean, does that convey what people? Yeah. So (laughs) what? 
Yeah, yeah but it's not a it's not a bad term. Um, I, I love our I love our patriarch actually. The <laughs> the book that I the book that I wrote, um, uh, a basic guide to Eastern Orthodox theology, introducing um, worship and belief. Uh, right the forward the forward was written by <laughs> patriarch. Yeah. Uh, the all his all holiness. Ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew. So I love our Patriarch. I need a title um, like that. His All Holiness. Yeah, isn't that beautiful? <laughs> and he's a wonderful, wonderful leader and person, a very Christ-like. So, mm. okay. Uh, Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman at the well. And what does she do after she encounters him? She goes back to Samaria and she preaches that she that she's that she's met the Messiah. Mm-hmm. In the Orthodox tradition, um, we well in the early Christian tradition, I should say. Um, she was baptized, and her name is Fotini, the enlightened mm. one. And she's called equal to the apostles in the Orthodox Church. She has a feast day, August 6th, in which she's commemorated every year. And she is, she is given the same hymns as the apostles, equal wow. to the apostles in honor. I'm trying to think of some of the other women. Phoebe mm-hmm. Uh, is a deaconess, and if you probably know Paul's term, yeah, yeah. when he refers to her, he calls her the akonos. He uses the male term. Yeah. She's not a deaconess. She actually is just a deacon. Right. Who else am I going to talk about? The myrrh-bearing women at the empty tomb of Christ, they're also called equal to the apostles. And as I mentioned already, the you come to my church, and there's a, there's a big icon of the Virgin Mary. Hmm. Um, she's very, she is I mean, as she's very honored in the Orthodox Church, but not in the same way as the Roman Catholic Church. So when people walk into my congregation, my parish, um, whether they're male or female, the role model of what it means to be a Christian is that 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 woman, Mary, mm. because she says every part of me belongs to God. Mm. Um, she's given herself wholly to God. Um, so it, yes, in the tradition of the Orthodox Church, there have been female deacons, mm-hmm. but no female priests. Okay. And and um, the 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 diaconess, or the, I should say, the deacon, female deacon, has gone out of practice in the recent centuries, but it never was eliminated. In the last century, um, a, a bishop in Greece ordained two women as deacons. So it, it's never really fallen out of the tradition. It just isn't is necessary now because in the early church. Women were baptized naked, and and they're anointed with oil, mm-hmm. um, and so they used the female deacons in order to do that out of out of modesty. So that sure. it isn't done so much now. Okay. Um, women in the Orthodox Church can preach, okay. and teach adults, adult men, adult males, um, whereas in other Protestant traditions, for example, where women are not ordained, they are also not allowed to teach. Right. So in the Orthodox Church, women um, can have uh, the blessing to teach, to preach. Um, they can pretty much do everything. Uh, we have uh, the Orthodox Church has parish councils, which is very similar to a Presbyterian mm-hmm. board of elders. And women can be the presidents of the parish council, which would be essentially being um, an elder yeah. in that sense. So I, I guess it's similar and different. Yeah. Um, there is probably no, uh, well, how should I say it? Orthodox are more comfortable with the idea that the Holy Spirit has not revealed to the church in 2,000 years that there should be a female priesthood. Okay. 
than, than maybe people outside the Orthodox Church. Yeah. So what so would I was? Deep, what's the logic behind that? Is it just because you have all male priests in the Bible, so we're going to follow that? Is that? I mean, I, I think there might be something like that. Um, I've never really come to a, a good conclusion because women certainly serve. They've been equal to the apostles. They've mm-hmm. they preach. They teach. They're martyrs. They female empresses who've called councils. Mm-hmm. They can pretty much do absolutely everything in the Orthodox Church that a male can do, mm-hmm. except consecrate the Eucharist. I think okay. probably my, my research should it has something to do with the sons of Aaron and the ones offering this the sacrifice. I'm not really sure. I'm yeah. just yeah, now yeah, I'm yeah, speculating. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also because the view of leadership is quite different, the view of priesthood and being or bishop, um, that you don't have this like exclude like it sounds like your description women have a lot of what we would call you know maybe again authority or maybe influence or you know oh, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah it's oh, I'm, on, I'm on the metropolis council mm-hmm. um a group of lay and clergy uh with our with our um metropolitan which is a bishop is just a fancy title for a bishop who has uh, oversight mm-hmm. of a larger area okay okay well, Eve, I've taken you almost an hour here, so thank you so much for sharing. Um, so, yeah, this is really uh, interesting stuff for me. I hope people are equally interested and maybe made a few converts. I don't know. We'll see if I get an. I'll, I'll let you know if I get an email saying, "All right, I'm 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 in." Um, but you, uh, your book again is a basic guide to Eastern Orthodox theology, introducing beliefs and practices. Been out for a couple of years, and it's exactly what it is—a a basic guide. So, if you guys are interested in hearing more about. Um, Eastern Theology. Uh, pick up this book. Eve, thanks so much for being a guest on Theology in I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. I really have enjoyed this chat and really thank you again for inviting me. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.